0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Good morning. My name is Jim and I'm one of the pastors here at Journey. And we are in part four of our series, You're Not Far. Uh, we're going to jump right in. Uh, for those of you who haven't been with us or are kind of catching up or you're at home and this is your first time, we're kind of in a deep dive in the gospel of Mark. Uh, <clears throat> so we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last week. Uh, one of the things that nobody has to teach us when we're young, like no one really has to do any kind of explanation for this. It's just, it's something we're, we're kind of innately born with this skill, and, and that is uh, to kind of uh, find and exploit loopholes, right? No one has to teach you that at a young age. You just kind of, you, you know, right? If it, somebody places a rule, then we always look for, for the kind of the workaround, if, if you will. What's the loophole? And if, if you don't believe me, here's just a few examples I can think of this week. <clears throat> your mom tells you to clear your plate, and you say, I did clear my plate right into the trash can. The whole thing, all clear. Your mom says to be home at 9, and you said uh, you didn't specify if it was like 9 p.m., so really I'm just like six hours early. I'm not late at all. We, we, we find and we exploit loopholes, and we're kind of taught to do that, or, or maybe it's just something that's ingrained in human nature. And we know what a loophole is, right? Here's what a loophole actually is. Loopholes are ways around the rules that technically don't break the rules. It's just like a technicality, right? We didn't technically break the rules. We found a a workaround or a loophole. And and we're going to find something really interesting this morning uh, is that this is something that we see happen throughout Scripture often. Uh, And as a matter of fact, it's one of the things that Jesus continually kind of bumped up against is this idea of loopholes. Uh, Do you know what we call people who, who basically create rules and then break those rules or technically find loopholes around those rules? We call those people, what? We call them hypocrites. You know what Jesus called religious people that break their own religious rules? He had a different w- phrase for them. He called them whitewashed tombs. It sounds kind of blah like as a burn, but it, I'm sure in like 1st century it was like, "Whoa, burn!" right? Like it was he got them good. Here's what a whitewashed tomb is. It's exactly what it sounds like. You're you're walking by and it's it's a stone face or a stone wall that's literally been washed. It's cleaned and it's washed and in some ways some uh, idea, it's almost like painted white, to look really nice and really pretty on the outside. But inside, it's death. Inside, it's rot. Inside, it's, it's foul, and it's smelly, and it's nauseating. As you said, that's what it's like for religious leaders who create religious rules because they know the rules, and they know the text, and then they break the rules themselves. And, I mean, if you spend any time in any religious circle, you know religious leaders are really, really good at that. So if you don't like religious leaders who do this, if you don't like hypocrites, or as Jesus would call them, whitewashed tombs, as we're going to discover this morning, you have a lot in common with Jesus. So like I said, we're in part four of a series called You're Not Far. We say this every week, but this is uh, a a story uh, that should have never survived Nero's Rome, but it did survive Nero's Rome. It's the story of Jesus of Nazareth and it's told to us by one of Jesus' most famous disciples, Simon Peter, and it was dictated to and written down by a man named John Mark. Simon, who uh, the, the famous disciple who was kind of loud and outspoken, really type A, spent all this time with Jesus through his ministry, and then when Jesus dies, he spends 30 years kind of walking around telling a story, and he's telling it to his travel companion, John Mark. They're in Rome. At this point, he's in Rome, and he, Peter has no idea if he's going to escape. Here's some, some uh you know, future forecasting, he doesn't escape. He's going to die in Rome, but he doesn't know that. And John Mark's kind of coaxing the story out of him one more time. Let me get it down one more time. So Peter's story comes to us in uh, the Gospel of Mark. And this is all about Peter's interactions with Jesus. This happened uh, just years after his his time Spent traveling and listening and, and watching this, this, these amazing things happens from this man, Jesus. I mean, just picture yourself in the first century. This guy comes to town. Wouldn't you rush to see him or sit at his feet or sit at a table and have a conversation with the guy who walked on water with Jesus? The guy who, was, who sat face-to-face for three years and heard the teachings and knew what he was like behind the scenes and knew what he was like when no one was around. Everybody would rush to hear it. Well, Mark knew this, and he said, Peter, give me the story one more time. Mark writes it down. As we're covering today's uh, narrative and looking through the stories that Peter's going to to tell Mark that we're going to read this morning, we say this every, but I want to say it again. Don't hear us reading the Bible because Mark's not writing the Bible. Mark has no idea of what's going to happen with the story. He just knows the story needs to be told. Mark is documenting Peter's experience with Jesus. And it would just so happen that after their time in Rome when Peter would die, Mark escapes down to Alexandria in Egypt, and we have said this before, the story's copied, and it makes its way all around the Mediterranean Rim, and other gospel stories, the accounts of the life with Jesus, and other writings from the Apostle Paul, they all kind of get gathered up, and around the 4th century, they're finally put together in a book called the Bible, but at this point, there's no Bible, there's one man's experience with Jesus, this man is Peter. And Peter tells us that as I spent my time with Jesus and, and I heard Jesus teach, over and over again, he would preach and he would teach the, the, the same thing. It was like this, the, this thing that he just couldn't get away from. And what would he say? Peter would say, he taught us this. He said, the time has come. The, the time has come. Everything you've been waiting for, all, all, the, all the religious practices, all the tradition, everything is pointed to this. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Basically, the king's son is here. This is what you've been waiting for. So here's what I want you to do. He said, there's, there's only one reaction I expect from this. He said, repent and believe the good news. And when we hear repent in, in, in some connotations, it comes across as kind of negative. But in this connotation, with, with the way Peter means, it's very positive. He's saying, here's what you have to do. When you know the time has come, when you know the kingdom of God has come near, that the king sent his own son for you. The only thing we can do, he said, is is turn from our old ways and embrace the new ways and face it and, and let it wrap our lives around this new thing. Previously, in You're Not Far, we discovered that Jesus, occasionally, he got angry. Occasionally, he had a bit of a temper. But what was really interesting is Jesus didn't get mad when Jesus didn't get his own way. Jesus got angry when religion got in the way. When, when, when religious people, were, where we would elevate the rules over the people that God loved, Jesus kind of stood in opposition to that. As a matter of fact, over and over again, we're going to see this opposition where, where with, uh, the religious leaders, the teachers, the Pharisees, where they would elevate the rules and the commands that God had given over the people that God loved. And Jesus said, no, no, it's, it's completely backwards. We've talked before about Jesus coming, kind of flipping the script, right, turning things upside down. He said, you've got it wrong. God didn't create a bunch of rules and commandments because he loves his rules and commandments and he wants to, he created you to kind of live out his rules and commands. He didn't do it as a way to control us. He gave us the rules and the commandments because he loves us and he knows what's best and he knows what's best for you. He said, You're elevating the wrong thing. And anytime we elevate a rule over people, what happens? People get hurt. So Jesus came along and he said, Here's I believe this so much he would say. I'm actually going to break one of your traditions. And we're going to dive into this about the the traditions, not the law, but the traditions. And this is where we left off last week. He he heals somebody on the Sabbath. And there's all this confrontation and all this opposition. And he makes this statement. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And we hear that and we think, you know, that's not a big deal at all. But his first century hearers heard that and it was life-altering. As a matter of fact, after this instance, every religious leader gathered and started making plans. How can we kill this man? For what? For healing on the Sabbath, because this meant that God loved people more than God loved rules. And all the rules and all the religious leaders and the temple system and Judaism and and all this first century religion kind of elevated and, and practiced. We've heard before there's hundreds and hundreds of rules. You're telling me the person I'm sitting next to is more important than that? And Jesus would say, Yes. That was given because God loved them so much. He stood in opposition. As a matter of fact, Jesus' teaching was so disturbing. Peter tells us, and this is where we left off last week, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, finally shows up in Peter's story of Jesus. It takes about seven chapters to get there. Mary finally shows up. And as as she shows up, uh, she brings Jesus' brothers and sisters along, and they come to kind of get Jesus and bring him home because his teaching is is so kind of disturbing and so disrupting. They're thinking, we've got to save him from himself. Here's what Mary says. She shows up and he says, he, Jesus, is out of his mind. Maybe some of your parents have said that about your kids before. Mary felt the same way. We, we have to save him. He's, he's doing too much. If he keeps going, it's going, it's going to just dis- like, tear this place down. Well, the religious leaders, they said something else about Jesus. As a matter of fact, they took it a step further and said, he's not just out of his mind. He is possessed. He is possessed of the devil. He, he's not doing anything good. This teaching isn't just disruptive. This isn't even of God. This is of the devil. We've got to deal with this man. But Jesus keeps teaching. And the crowds keep growing. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us the crowds keep growing so much, we can't stop doing what we're doing. He just keeps teaching and healing and performing signs, and it keeps going. Actually, as a matter of fact, for chapters, it's kind of the same routine. He keeps teaching and preaching, and the crowds keep coming and keep coming and keep coming, and Peter's kind of, I almost imagine when he's telling Mark, Mark, you wouldn't believe it. We just, we kept going so far, it was like we were exhausted. We, we needed a break. We needed kind of this, the, this respite. We needed to take a step back. But it wasn't like a bad exhaustion. Do you ever have like a bad exhaustion? Like you're just morally empty, you're, you're, you're like emotionally empty, you're just like bankrupt. He's like, no, 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 this was a good exhaustion. Like we'd been working and doing so much good, like we didn't have time to stop and eat or take a nap, we were like done. So we wanted to take a break. So, so we, got, we got on a boat, and, and we sail across this, this little sea of Galilee. And here's where our story picks up. As soon as they get out of the boat on the other side of Galilee, <clears throat> if you can go to that verse for me, sorry, that's as much as I remembered. We're almost there. Gets in a boat with his disciples. They're making their way across the Sea of Galilee. They think they're going over. They think they're, they're going to take a little bit of a break. And what happens? People begin to recognize Jesus. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They knew where he was. The crowds didn't die. The crowds kept coming. As a matter of fact, in, in Mark's gospel, Peter's story, there's only two chapters where the word crowd doesn't appear. Peter's just kind of overwhelmed. Everywhere we went, there was people and people and people. And why did they come? He tells us. They ran through, all throughout. They gathered all of their sick people. They ran all throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard that he was. I mean, imagine this. Imagine seeing this. They, just, they hear Jesus is coming and they're running home and they're, they're grabbing their, their, you know, their sick friend or family member on a mat. And they're kind of picking him up and they're just following Jesus along. And what would they do with these people? <clears throat> wherever he went, into villages, towns, and countrysides, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, just hoping that as Jesus walked by, he would take a moment and stop and heal their loved one. The streets were flooded. The marketplaces were flooded. Everywhere Jesus went, people were rallying in hundreds and thousands just bringing their sick so Jesus could do what Jesus would do. And imagine as Peter's telling this story, he kind of smiles a little bit and he remembers what's happening. There were were just thousands of people and, and people loving Jesus and wanting to see Jesus. And then something changed. Then the faces in the crowd, they weren't always smiling. They weren't always happy. There were some hostile faces in the crowd. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. Now, we've covered this before. We've showed you this map. We're going to show you it again. The, the religious kind of uh, cl- pinnacle, the religious center of this religion, Judaism, it happens down in Jerusalem, which is down here. So all the religious leaders, this is where like, like the temple of temples is. This is the, the holy of holies. This is where everything happens. It's all down here. And they begin to hear stirrings of Jesus up here in, in, around the Sea of Galilee, around Capernaum, around this whole area. Of this stirring of this guy teaching. And it's, it's kind of disturbing. It's kind of disruptive. And they're not sure. So these religious leaders, these kind of high priests, they send this delegation, a religious group of priests, up into this area to see what was happening, to kind of investigate. Who is this man, and what is he teaching? Is he proclaiming to be the Messiah? Is this move really of God, or is it of the devil? And do we need to kind of stomp this thing out before it starts this unrest? There's this this disruption happening, and it's, it's not just religious, it's even political. And they want to deal with it. So the religious leaders send a group up here to this area. It's about a six- or a seven-day journey, and they make it up into this crowd that is listening to Jesus teach. There's sick people around. He's just done this, like, chapter after chapter of this gospel of doing these amazing things. They show up, and what's the first thing they do? They begin to attack Jesus. As a matter of fact, they say it this way, and some of these people saw his disciples that were eating food with hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. And that's Mark's way of saying, you may not understand all of these religious customs because I'm writing this in the first century and you may not be a Jew, you may be a Gentile. Here's the deal. He's going to let us know. Here's here's why this was a big deal to them. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing holding to the tradition of the elders. He kind of puts it in quotes like, you need to understand this isn't Peter. I'm just explaining what Peter's trying to say here. And he includes this little phrase here, tradition of the elders. And this is what we're going to kind of dive into a little bit because this is the opposition that Jesus continues to bump up against. When God gave Moses the, the Ten Commandments and the law, this is all the way back kind of at the beginning of your Bibles. This is Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus. This is all the story of kind of the, begin, the beginning of this Jewish nation and, and God's commandment and God's covenant with them. When God gave Moses all the rules and all the Ten Commandments, they also believed, this religious group, that Moses came down not just with the written law, but with an oral law. And this oral law had all these extra laws and all these extra rules that kind of... uh, uh, it maybe, like, worked into the application of the rules, and they just kind of piled on all these extra commands on top of this set of ten commands that came from God that, that was actually written. They call it the Oral Torah. And this Oral Torah was passed down from generation to generation to generation, you know, from Moses to, to Aaron, all the way down to the high priest. But it was never written... So the, the only people who knew was this select group of high priests, and, and it got to the point when, in the first century where there were so many rules and so many laws that even the priests would kind of argue against each other at what was really the Torah and what wasn't the oratora. I mean, could you imagine? There are so many laws that are written that's hard to find, and then there's a whole pile of extra laws that no one has them written down. I mean, how do you even honor and obey them? We don't know. And that's kind of the, the feeling. Really, that's kind of the feeling. It's, it's like, I didn't even know. Well, of course you didn't. You know, I just made it up. It's, over, it's in the Oral Torah. It's over here. That's kind of this practice. And, and as a matter of fact, there's no evidence this that it actually existed except that these extra rules would be kind of pushed out and, and, and held the people accountable to from these high priests. And this is the opposition that Jesus continues to bump up against. As a matter of fact, as we read through this gospel and you read through other gospels, Jesus seems to bump heads with the Pharisees over and over and over again. But it almost never happens about the actual written law. It almost always happened about the extra laws, the orator, if you will, the rules that they made up to kind of continue to govern the way they wanted to govern. Jesus hears them say this. And what does he do? He kind of, he kind of just jumps right in. He's, he's, he's angry. He's frustrated. And again, he's frustrated because people are elevating rules over people. And anytime time we do that, we're taking away from the people that God loved so that we can hurt them and get our own way out of it. So they show up. They begin to accuse Jesus' disciples <clears throat> of not washing their hands. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating, with the food, or eating their food with defiled hands, they're accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking one of their oral Torah traditions, the tradition of the elders. And Jesus kind of jumps right in. And you would imagine these are new people Jesus would kind of send out a nice greeting first. No, he goes right at him. He comes out of the gate swinging. He, he jumps right at him. He says this, Jesus replied, Isaiah was right. And he goes right back to, to, to their Bible, to, right, to the old covenant. He goes right back to Isaiah, the prophet, this highly esteemed prophet. He uses their words against him. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites right out of the gate, swinging. And I imagine, uh, again, if we're going to put the map up here, these people made a six or seven day journey, right? They're down here in Jerusalem. They traveled six or seven days to hear Jesus. This is the religious epicenter of of their world. You would imagine the disciples hearing this and they see like these religious leaders in the crowds, like finally, we're going to gain some credibility. Finally, people are going to rally around. This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus is going to continue to teach and he's going to make his way from Capernaum up in Galilee down to Judea, then into Jerusalem. He's going to declare himself the messiah this is what we've been working towards and right out of the gate they send some people up here to investigate and jesus what do you do you like you're taking shots like like step one like i could just imagine the disciples cringing like oh no jesus not again like dial it back just a little bit like jesus we need some friends we need some credibility we especially need some friends down in jerusalem that's not how jesus plays He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, and now he begins to quote the Bible, their Bible to them. These people honor me with their lips, which is like a burn. Like They know the right things to say. These religious leaders, they know the text. They know how to say all the right things, and that's something religious leaders even today are really good at. We know how to say all the right things, but their hearts are far from me. They're really good at taking the text and speaking the text, but their hearts, their hearts are so far from me that even though the time has come and everything they've been practicing, everything, the whole religion was all meant to point to me, to point to this time, they're missing it. Their hearts are so far from me that even though the kingdom of God is near, they won't even respond to the king when he's here. Their hearts are so far, they haven't been prepared. They have no idea what's happening in their own midst. Because the best they can do is honor me with their lips. But their hearts are gone. And I can just imagine being one of the disciples sitting there, hearing these words, like, oh, God, Jesus, come on. Of all the people, like why, just try to work them over, like, in a nice way. Can't you do it nice? He's just like, no, these two things don't coexist. This new thing that I'm introducing with this, this old way of doing things, with this old orator that didn't even come from my father, they're not going to coexist. He continues, they worship in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That's how we know Jesus didn't agree with the orator. This isn't even something that came from God. This is your rules. You made it up so you could control. You made it up so you could dominate. You made it up so you would be the elevated, the high priest, the the holy ones. These are your rules. These didn't come from God. This isn't from my father. My father doesn't create rules to, to, to push people down. He created rules to lift people up, to show them the better way because he loved them. He said, I don't even agree with these rules. I don't even think these rules exist. This is what you made up. This is your manipulation." Religious leaders, again, are really good at that. You've let go of the commands of God, the actual commands of God, and you're holding on to your human traditions. And then he continues. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. It's really easy for you to push away the actual law and honor your own law instead. And now he's going to take a deep dive. He's going to give this this kind of robust example of how they actually do this, of how they have violated the actual commands of God and elevated their own traditions. They've created a religious loophole for their benefit. And then he just begins to humiliate them. As if this wasn't enough, and this is done in public in front of thousands of people, he's going to take the whole conversation a step further. He says it this way. He says, for Moses, Moses was their guy. But Moses, it was God's guy, right? He's the guy who brought the law. That's their guy. And and, as we're going to see this kind of challenge through this this whole um, gospel, this whole story, this whole narrative, is that Jesus is trying to say, Moses was your guy, but God sent me, and now I'm your guy. I don't think Moses was wrong. Moses was there for a time, and Moses got you to this point, but God sent me to take you further. Moses was your guy. But Moses, he actually said this. He said, honor your father and mother, which is the fifth of the Ten Commandments. He said, Moses actually said that. But then what's interesting is Jesus actually adds on to this, the punishment of breaking that commandment. And no no one does this. No one really likes to do this. But he goes back into Exodus and he pulls the punishment out. And he says this. He says, Moses actually said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. You see, what's really interesting, and we do this even in the 21st century, we kind of reach back and we pull all these rules and all these laws out, out of, out of the, the old covenant. And Jesus said, no, 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 that, that was the old. And if you want the old, if you want Moses' way, if you want Judaism, you can have all that. But you got to take all of it. You see, what, what they were doing, what we tend to do is we reach back and we find a rule we like. And we're like, oh, I'm going to take that out of the old and I'm going to bring it into this, this new this new context, this new thing that Jesus created that we're all kind of a part of. He said, so, no, 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 if you do that, you bring everything with it. You bring all of the baggage. You bring all of, of the, the curses. You bring all of the punishment. If you're going to bring one, you've got to bring both. You see, it, it doesn't work in pieces. There was a system that worked, and this system is new, and it's better, and this system works better. But if you want the old, you've got to take all of the old. And taking all the old means you don't just get the, the commands you want. You get the punishments you don't want. And Jesus is saying, no, no that, that old way of doing things, that was the way. But here's the new way. I'm the new way. I'm your new man. To Jesus, this was an all-inclusive deal. You could have all of Moses' way, or you could have this new thing that God's doing. But if you have the new, you've got to separate the old. You've got to detach from the old a little bit. You've You've got to make sure that the old was there for a purpose and was there for a reason. But it doesn't coexist with this new thing. As a matter of fact... Uh, this is true of Christians, and you may not know this, but children, or rather Christians, <clears throat> don't honor their father and mother because Moses told us to. We, we don't. Although we do honor our father and mother, we don't do it because Moses, Moses told us to. Moses was the man, and Moses brought the law. And what Moses brought, this, this system was set up to point everyone to Jesus, to this time, to, to when Jesus would come, to when the kingdom would be here. But now that Jesus is here and the time has come, Jesus said, no, no, now I'm your man. And I'm bringing with it a whole new set of rules, a whole, a whole new set, a whole new way of living. As a matter of fact, you don't need 10, you don't need 5, you don't need, you don't need 4. I just have, I have one. I have one rule that I want everyone to listen to. And if you follow this rule, you'll honor all the other rules behind it. And that rule was this, to, to love one another as I have loved you. And it's radical and and it's life-changing. And to this crowd, to this audience, to the first century who grew up this way, this was like, I don't know that I can roll with this, Jesus. This is too radical. This is too disturbing. As a matter of fact, later in Jesus' life, as a matter of fact, later in this book, Jesus would make a statement that that the, the disciples should have went running to the hills for. He says this. He says, all authority in heaven. All authority in heaven has been given to me. Or in other words, Moses was your guy but God has sent me and now I'm your guy. Christians don't honor their father and mother because Moses told us to. We honor our father and mother because Jesus, who is now our guy, has instructed us to love one another the way that he loved us. And kids, every child, every teenager, every adult who has a parent, your parents fall into that one another. That's why we do what we do, because Jesus said, do as I do. For Moses actually said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother must be put to death. But you say, and now he turns directly to them. Here's an example of how you've violated God's law to keep your own commandment. But you say that anyone who declares what, what, what uh, might have been used to help their father and mother is Corbin. That is devoted to God. And again, Mark doesn't give us a a big explanation for this because he's kind of writing to a first century audience who would understand this. This is how we know that Mark wrote his gospel when the eyewitnesses were still alive because he's writing to people who should understand what Corbin is. But we don't understand what Corbin is. So I'm going to explain it in just a minute. And then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. So here's what he's saying. He said, you basically created this loophole that, that people have all this money, they have all this wealth, and just like it is today, taking care of your parents as they're aging is expensive, and it's tired, it's like exhausting, and we, we, we get it. So you want a way out? Here's your way out. Give everything you have. Give everything you're going to make, all of your wealth, all of your current wealth, all of your future wealth, and donate it to God. Donate it to the temple. But here's the kicker. While you're alive, you can still use it like it's yours. And when you're dead, it all goes to the temple. But if anybody between now when you devote it to God and when you die comes to you, like a a brother or sister or mother or father or neighbor, and they say, but we need your help financially. You can just turn around and say to them, well, I would really love to help, but I can't. It's not mine anymore. It's all God's. You've created a loophole so that they no longer have to help their parents. You've created a loophole. You've created a law that is in direct violation of one of the laws that God actually gave us. You continue to create laws. Jesus would want to say, I, I, I could stand up here all day and I could go after rule after rule after rule where you've created a rule to violate God's rule. You, so you can have this loophole where you think you can get away with it. And do you know what the problem with loopholes are? First of all, it, it, it's like, who's foolish enough to believe that it actually works? Did you ever get away with it? Oh yeah, I guess you, you tricked me. I did say clear your plate. You got me. You're good. I did say nine. I did specify 9 p.m. That's all right that you came in at three. My fault. I'll be clearer next like, no, you never get away with it. And then what does it do? It makes, it makes God look small and petty, doesn't it? Like somehow they're going to get away with this. Like somehow they've tricked God. And God's like, well, guys, you got me. I guess you're all right. Don't honor your father and mother. They were using rules. They elevated rules over God's people and in turn hurt people. And Jesus said, I've had enough. Let me ask you this, and and this is a hard question. I've got to ask this of of myself as well, but have you ever sinned against someone? If you don't like that word sin, let, let me use it another way. Have you ever hurt someone? Have you ever hurt somebody, and, and maybe intentionally or unintentionally, and then thought, you know, because of a, maybe a religious system or, or something that your parents taught you or your pastor taught you, or maybe your church taught you, that you could just kind of, kind of do this little thing that's going to kind of cleanse your conscience, but it never really offers restoration? That somehow it'll make you right with God, but it's not going to like solve the problem or make you right with the people that you hurt or violated or offended or sinned against? I mean, it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Some of you are laughing. We all have. And at some point, we, we, we kind of use this, this idea of prayer and forgiveness. Well, if I just make myself right with God, I'm all good, and I don't have to worry about it, and I can just keep going on. We've all fallen victim to a religious loophole where we create our own rules to try to make escape, an escape, an easy getaway instead of doing what actually matters. That's not how it works. Jesus said, you're elevating your rule over the people that God loves the most. And that's not how the world works. Jesus would look at you just like he looks at his first century audience, and he would say this, by doing that, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. You've created a tradition that actually violates not just something in the Bible, but a teaching and a a, a rule given by your Savior. Jesus taught it. If you don't make things right with my children, you can't be right with God. And I've used this example before. It's, it's like, me, me, I would say it this way. If you hurt or offend my kids, don't invite me to lunch. Don't call me and act like we're buddies. Like, make it right with my kids first, and then we can talk about moving on. But, but if you're going to hurt and attack my kids, don't think you and I are okay. Your Heavenly Father is the same way. Don't hurt my children and then think just because you threw up this big prayer, hey, God, forgive me, we're all right. Make it right with my children. Back to the story. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and that you do many things like this. In other words, I could go on and on and on. You guys think this is just one thing? There are many things that you do. Traditions that you've elevated over the actual law of God and you've screwed the system up so badly They got had to send me to do something brand new. I imagine, again, that the disciples are just sitting back like, oh, seriously, Jesus. You couldn't have just let it go. I mean, it was just washing our hands. They weren't seeing the bigger picture. But these people have come a long way. And and if we were to to earn their friendship, it would go a long way for us when we get to Jerusalem. They couldn't see the bigger picture. As a matter of fact, soon after this, They they, they kind of wrap things up in the town. Jesus just kind of walks away. That was like a mic drop, like done, moving on. Peter's offended. The the people in the crowd are offended. The religious people are just like seething with anger. Jesus is out. They're kind of walking along, and Jesus takes a moment now to explain to his disciples what just happened. Soon after this, he's with his disciples, and he begins to teach them all the things that are going to come. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And then he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, which Peter probably thought, yeah, no wonder. Did you you see what you just did? Of course they're angry. Of course they're going to attack you. I mean, if you just spent some time kind of working them over and and winning their affection. No, no, no. You say, you don't understand. This is all written. It's going to happen. And it needs to happen so that this new way, this new thing that I'm introducing, this, this new kingdom a kingdom of conscience, a kingdom that is dominated by this this one rule to love people the way that I love you, the way that I'm going to show you that I love you. All of this has to happen. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Our response is to repent and believe the good news not to elevate our own rules, not to elevate our own traditions, but to say, God, maybe I I didn't get it right. Maybe I've missed the mark. Maybe I need to turn again in your direction and embrace this new thing Jesus offered. We'll pick up there next week. But before we do, I just want to talk a little bit about the, the application of all this. I mean, this is a lot. Jesus dropped some bombs there that weren't just true of religious leaders in the first century. They're very true of us in the 21st century. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna just ask a few questions. Have you, at any point in your life, have you let go of the commands of God to hold on to your human traditions? Jim, I don't know that I, I like you saying it that way. Well, ask it another way. <clears throat> have you, at any point in your life, found a loophole, set aside the actual commands of God in order to observe your own traditions? I know what you're thinking, Jim. This is really personal. These aren't my words. Look in Mark. This is all in red. This is Jesus' words to you. And I know what makes us uncomfortable, but the truth is maybe we need to be a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe you're sitting at home and, and, and you're tempted to go to another browser. Don't go to another browser. I'm gonna ask four more questions and it might get a little bit uncomfortable, but, but if we're gonna take this thing Jesus initiated seriously, if we're gonna, as we always say here, we wanna kind of move forward in our relationship to take a step in our relationship with Jesus, maybe these questions need to be asked. And not just a you. I gotta be honest, as I was studying this and, and reviewing this, I get convicted every time I ask these questions to myself. But maybe they need to be asked. There's four questions. <clears throat> Do you ever try to figure out how close you can get to sin without actually sinning? I mean, I feel like we, we, we kind of do this all the, all the time, right? We want to know where the line is. And, and, and not so we can avoid the line. We want to know where the line is so we, wanna, so we can get like right up to the line. How close can I get without crossing that line of sin? What, what, what's too much? Is, is that too much or is, you know, I'm really not over the line. Most of my body is not on the line. I'm good. How close can I get without actually sinning? Jim, where's the loophole when it comes to sin? I I, I like Jesus, and I want Jesus on my side. I like God, and I don't want to to offend God. As a matter of fact, I want God in my back pocket. But how close can I get to doing what I want to do without actually offending God? Kind of making God awfully small, aren't we? How about this one? Do you believe there's a ritual, and we kind of hit on this before, that makes you right with God? Do you believe that there's a ritual that makes you right with God while... removing your responsibility to make things right with others? Do you believe that at any point you can offend people and, and just kind of walk through your religious practice, your religious tradition, whatever it is, you know, you get on your knees, God, forgive me my sins, I know I upset them, I know I did this, I know I was wrong, just forgive me and we're good and my life's good and we'll go back to normal. Do you believe that at any point there's this tradition, this thing that you can do that makes you right with God and not right with other people? I won't spend too much time on this. We all have some kind of system that we go through. Whether you're a goer or you're not a church goer, maybe this is your first time in church at all. We all have a system of things we go through that want to make us right with God so that we can be forgiven, so that God can remove our sin. Very often, it's only me and God. And I think often, God, our Father, is looking down and saying, no, no, but what about my children? What about the one you've offended? What about the one you've hurt? What about the one you robbed from? What about the, the one who, who you broke? What about them? Do you ever feel guiltier about missing mass or church than mistreating someone at work? Because of my profession, I hear this all the time. And because of COVID, I hear this even more than I heard it before. I hear it all the time. Oh, I, I need to get back in church. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, we're going to get back. I just need to get back in church. And I, I'll start by saying this. There is a value to coming to church, and we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But do you feel like coming to church matters more than how you treat the people in your life, the people you work with, the people you live with? Like God is, is somehow only mysteriously concerned about your church attendance and not about how you treat the people you work with. I don't have to worry about that. That's Monday. As long as I'm here on Sunday, we're good. What I do on Monday to Friday, that's, that's, that's my business. That's my tradition. Do you ever think that missing mass or church is more important than how we treat people? How about this one? I, I love this one. <clears throat> Are you banking on the myth that got a short-term memory loss? <laughs> and it is a myth. So, somehow, somewhere, and if you grew up like me, we, you, we, I don't know why, but it, like Sunday school teachers love teaching this. Because there's a verse in the Old Testament that God has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west, we have this idea that if I just say, God, forgive me, it's like he erases it out of his mind. And if you ask to, for, to be forgiven again for the thing you did, God's like, what are you talking about? I don't know. I, I don't know. And then you hear, I always heard this, but God's powerful enough that God could do that, that God could erase his own memory and never remember. It's like, well, let's not talk about some of those things that like, in the Old Testament that would stir up God's memory. You know, David and that girl, we can not mention her name in case we remind God, and, you know, God doesn't know. Like, it's... No. It's a tradition to help ease our conscience and make us feel better. But that's not what Jesus came to introduce. He said, that was the old way. Let me introduce something new to you. Let me introduce something better to you. A kingdom that you've been invited into. And this is the the beautiful thing about following Jesus. Jesus. It's an invitation for all of us, for even you sitting at home. It's an invitation for anybody who would follow Jesus. It's an invitation out of this silliness, out of this kind of backwards way of thinking, well, I can just live the way I want and create a loophole tradition over here to to be who I want to be, And, and, and that never works well. I mean, we see this all the time. Christians, we should know better. The people on the outside looking in, do you know what they think of us? You do, and we continue to do this. She said, no, no, there's something better than this. I've invited you to be, something, to be a part of something better, to be a part of my kingdom. It's a kingdom of conscience. It's a kingdom that's unlike any kingdom you've ever seen before. It's a kingdom of conscience that's built on, on this one law, on the law of Christ. <clears throat> and it's not 10, it's not, not five, it's not 600. It's one law that captures all the other laws. My kingdom is simple and it's easy, but the application is so difficult for all of us. What is it, Jesus, to love others as God, through Christ, has loved you? To love people, Jesus would say, the way that I'm going to show the whole world I love you. And if you do that, you're part of it. That means every day we wake up and we ask ourselves this question. What does love require of me? When you're looking at how you're going to treat your kids, when you're looking at the fight you had with your husband, when, when you're talking about the people you're kind of bumping up in heads with at work, what does love require of me? When you're talking about mistreating someone for your benefit because of your tradition, and I can create a loophole, what does love require of me? Jesus had invite, has invited us to stop playing games. And we all play games. We've all, we've all fallen victim to this, haven't we? To stop playing games. And to start getting serious about our faith and about our commitment to follow him. Would you follow me into this new kingdom? And would you love like I have loved you? The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. And our only response is to repent, to turn away from our old, and to embrace this new thing Jesus has given us. To repent and believe this good news. This means no matter where you are this morning, you are never far from God's love because God's love is never far from you. No matter where you are, you've been invited to move away from your old, your old system, your old tradition, even if it wasn't a religious one, you've been invited to move away from the old and to embrace the new. Will you put your faith in the fact that God has loved you so much that he sent his own son to die on your behalf. We're never far from God because his love is never far from you. We'll pick up here next week. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. God, that, that Peter gave his narrative, his story one more time. I thank you, God, that it has survived the ages. I thank you that we can look and God, not only was this written to a first century audience, but Lord, even hundreds and thousands of years later, Lord, it is still applicable as if it were written right to us. It is so easy to get caught up in our own lives and in our own way of doing things, God, that we miss the bigger picture. We miss what you're trying to do. I pray for each of us, Lord, that we would hear with open ears the the words of Jesus. God, to move away from our old ways, to move away from our old traditions, and to embrace the ways of Jesus, of our Father. I pray that you'd give us the wisdom to see that, God, and the courage to take a step in that direction. God, maybe for some of us it means calling somebody we haven't talked to in a while, but we know we've done something wrong. And having a conversation, Lord, we don't want to have. Maybe it means for some of us that we need to prioritize the people around us as opposed to all of our religious traditions. God, maybe it means for the first time that seeking forgiveness with you also means seeking forgiveness with those we've hurt. Would you give us the wisdom to see it and the courage to take those steps? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.